You're listening to Dedication Point, an oral history of the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. This oral history project was produced by the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, working in close collaboration with the Bureau of Land Management, the Wildlands Collective, and the Peregrine Fund's Archives of Falconry. We will be featuring a series of 20 interviews conducted with key figures in the history of the Snake River Canyon region. We'll be releasing one interview each week over the course of the next five months here on this podcast feed. Our second interview in this series is with the man who took it upon himself to tell Morley Nelson's story. Steve Stubner is the author of Cool North Wind, a biography of Morley Nelson. Steve spent years researching Morley's life for this book, conducting numerous interviews and uncovering fascinating details about the creation of the Snake River Birds of Prey NCA. Steve Stubner researched and wrote his book while Morley was still alive, so he had the opportunity to interview Morley numerous times during this process. So Steve's insight into the role that Morley played in the creation of this national conservation area is invaluable, and we must thank him for taking the time to chat with us. Steve Stubner, and uh, been a resident of Boise since uh, winter of 86, and um, connection to the NCA. Um, you know, I, I don't really have a distinct memory of exactly the first time I went down there. Um, I went down there a lot. Um, in the winter and in the spring for my own uh, recreational interests in terms of hiking or mountain biking. Um, and later I went down with Morley Nelson a number of times. But uh, anyway, it's um, it was an area that had um, a great reputation when I moved here. Um, and everyone seemed to know about it. And a lot of people seem to know about Morley. Today, uh, I think the Birds of Prey area is still pretty well known, but uh, the memories of Morley are uh, diminishing with, um, I guess, the passing of the greatest generation, you might say. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I mean, I, I wonder if you have, like, um, a memory or, or a moment that sticks out that you know maybe not of like your first visit to that area but like uh gaining an awareness of like how unique and distinct it is compared to other protected areas um you know maybe it's like something you learned through a conversation with morley or somebody else or through um well yeah i came to boise um as the environmental reporter for the statesman um And so I was covering two or three environmental stories a day uh, writing for them, and I was totally into it. I loved what I was doing, and um, I was immersing myself in all kinds of different topics. And so I think I don't even remember what the first story was that I wrote about the Birds of Prey area, but at that point I would have learned that it was the 
nation's largest nesting area for birds of prey in North America, if not the world. Um, and so that's pretty uh, a staggering um, realization that it's super important. Mm-hmm. And I do remember kind of in that time, Morley was concerned about some expansion with the orchard training area with the National Guard. And they were worried about how that might affect uh, habitat and the prey base for birds' prey. Gotcha. Um, I mean, I wonder, like, in the the work that you did uh, as a reporter for the Statesman, um, I, like, I'm sure you, you were you were. It sounds like you were clearly covering events that were going on. Yeah. Um, in in the area. Right. Um, and I mean, if if you started doing that in '86, like, you probably covered you know some significant milestones uh, i mean or is like like were you still working as a reporter in 93 when they uh, when it was designated i was but actually i left the statesman in 91 okay and i went on to become a uh, national freelance writer ah gotcha so i was writing more for both places like high country news and salt lake trib and oregonian seattle times new york times and so i was uh, looking for bigger stories that would uh, that I could sell to those kinds of sure. publications. Sure. So I didn't cover that particular event in '93, um, but you know, in writing the chapter about the Birds of Prey area history in the Cool North Wind book, it you know it was really the uh, the 1980 withdrawal that was the the huge step that pretty much put that area to bed with Cecil Andrus making that administrative withdrawal at that time. And Mm -hmm. then that would have predated me uh, because that happened in 1980. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I certainly put it all together in in the chapter that I did about the Bird's Prey area. So um, tell me about where the idea came from to write a biography of Morley Nelson. Had, had you already met Morley Nelson at this point? Did you oh, have yeah. a sense of who he was? I mean, so yeah. I mean, maybe like do you have a memory of meeting him for the first time? Well, I don't know about the first time, but just sort of I just remember any time he called or he might come down to the office and and put his arm around me and say, "Okay, we got something big going on. You, you need to come up to the house. We need to talk about it." <laughs> and anytime you would go up to the house, then that meant you would go over to the hawk house and then he would um, show you the different birds that were there at the time. And the first time I went there, I mean, I had never seen a golden eagle or a bald eagle within a foot, you know, of the bird. I mean, that was unbelievable to be able to see that. And, you know, he'd put on this glove where he had the um, leather of uh, cowboy boots cut out with an actual leather glove and all sewn together with leather. That was his bird glove. And um, had a freezer full of uh, ducks and duck necks and different things that he would feed the birds. And um, But anyway, it was just um, so impressive to see the menagerie of birds that were there including peregrine falcons and prairie falcons and merlins and um it was just you you were so touched by that and that was really part of morley's art of show and tell and basically part of his magic and he would do that 
with literally hundreds of people. And he also did that with neighborhood boys that wanted to come by and learn about falconry and hawking. And so that was one way that he, he trained some future wildlife biologists was just basically they hung out at the house and learned about that and were touched up close and personal by the birds. And then um, they were hooked. Mm -hmm. So I was hooked too. And, uh, but I mean, he would, it would never be a short meeting with Morley. Um, you would go up there and you wouldn't go there, get the, the news and leave in 30 minutes. Like what I really needed to do. <laughs> I would be there for a couple hours, if not more. And you're, you're stuck there. And then he kept talking to you about stuff and the world according to Morley. And, and um, so there was always sort of this huge universe that he would cast everything inside of. And um, so you would sometimes have to wait 15, 20 minutes to sort of hear the, the world according to Morley before you'd really find out, what is the news story here? <laughs> and as a journalist, I knew that I still haven't heard any news here, you know. <laughs> What's the news? You know, and then he would get into something about the guard or at that time in that era, um, he was also um, pretty hip deep in a lot of the Peregrine Falcon stuff with the Peregrine Fund. And he had already convinced them to move to Boise. Um, but he was involved in a lot of the captive breeding kinds of stuff really early on he was doing some of that same stuff at his hawk house that they did behind closed doors at the peregrine fund to uh get the semen from male birds and so forth and so um and then you know he would fly birds all the time when you go over there and say i was just going over there more just to hang in the afternoon after four o'clock he he would fly birds mm -hmm. just in the side yard mm -hmm. And German Shepherd was there, Major, and um, he would let one of his prairie falcons off. And it would just go fly up all around the neighborhood, and there's songbirds scattering everywhere, you know. And, and then he would swing the lure and uh, bring the, the bird back, and, and uh, it was quite something to see. And uh, just in a snapshot of time, you could kind of see what falconry was all about. Yeah. Yeah, it's that's that's fascinating, and and I think it it says a lot about like his approach towards education and and you know uh, outreach and and right. you know, his conservation work, right? Like it was uh, the fact that I mean, like on two levels, right? Like first of all, on the level of like his relationship with you, right? Like he clearly had established this relationship with you based yeah. on the fact that you were the environmental reporter for the statesman, right? right? Like, he right. wanted to have a direct line Absolutely, you, right? absolutely, yeah. Um, but then also to hear that, like, well, it wasn't just you. He did the same thing for, like, a neighbor kid that was interested in falcons. Oh, God, yes, and everybody right. else, for that matter. Right, I mean, right. He, he did regional and national meetings with ranchers, sheep ranchers, cattle ranchers, and would do the same kind of thing but he'd, he'd fly like a golden eagle at those national conventions and and then the bird might take off from the tea perch and fly all throughout the audience you know and come back to the teach tea perch um and they'd see the talons and the the powerful talons of that golden eagle just basically 
you know, just like putting grooves in that wood, you uh-huh. know, and ranchers could relate to the strength uh-huh. of that eagle, and that just gave them like instant respect. Right. Right. So um, he was the master of show and tell, and I think in retrospect that was really one of his greatest gifts, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And he just he was very good at it, and he was subtle about it in that, you, you know, it was done more just like, oh, this is really cool, that I'll show you this, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and But he knew exactly what he was doing mm-hmm. and just did it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At what point do you decide that you're going to write a biography? I mean, what was the inspiration behind that? Well, the family felt that uh, they really wanted to have a book done on Morley. And they, I think they still want to have a movie done about him. Um, I mean, there's certainly been a lot of films done where he was featured. But anyway, so I think they approached me in the later 90s. And um, I was an independent writer at the time, and um, I was definitely interested in the project. And and he kind of um, handpicked me to do it. And um, so I told them that I felt like the the really the first step would be to look for a publisher and uh, work on finding getting a book contract and figuring out how I could get paid to do the project because I, I was an independent writer and I had to get paid for the stuff I did. And I was, I had my own business basically. And so I knew, uh, that was essential. And, um, so we, we sent out all kinds of queries. I kind of put a standard, um, book proposal together and approached a whole bunch of, um, publishers and agents in New York, and then um, over time we were getting rejected pretty universally at that level, and then um, just ended up uh, pitching it to Caxton Press and Caldwell, and uh, they were really excited about the book, and they knew about Morley's reputation, and they knew he'd given thousands of people boat tours in the birds of prey area which is something that he was doing every saturday um in those days with steve gwynn the outfitter and um so they figured there was probably a pretty good market for it locally and uh so we we looked at the um outline and they they liked it a lot and and we tweaked that a little bit and then um um we worked with a nonprofit in Boise that agreed to serve as kind of an intermediary to receive funds, um, and so basically the book contract that I get through that I got through Caxton wasn't going to pay the freight in terms of my time, and so uh, Morley and I went around and talked to some of his good friends with money in Boise, people like Ron Yockey, Tom Nicholson, Velma Morrison. Um, and they all contributed funds, and then that was um, held by the nonprofit, and then I could bill against that to pay for my time, and we had a project. And so I think that started around 98, somewhere in there, and the book was published in 2000. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So once you, you, know, once you secured the funding, secured the publisher, you're like, all right, we're doing this thing, 
I mean, how did you like settle in with Morley to like a routine? You know, I mean, where what was your like your starting <clears throat> point? You know? Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I had a ton of interviews to do, and I also knew I couldn't really trust what Morley said. Sure. To the to the T. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people told me afterwards they were really proud of me for actually doing the independent research that I did to really get down to brass tacks about what his role was with various things. And by the time he was getting older, his role got larger. And some things that he didn't figure as prominently in. And there was no reason to to uh, to uh, stretch the truth because he had done plenty. Mm-hmm. But I did want to be accurate. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, I've donated all of my research materials to the Paragon Fund archives, um, but I, I did, I don't know the exact number of interviews I did, but, um, I know it was over 50 and they were all taped interviews, ideally in person, but some were over the phone, over speakerphone. Um, I, uh, I was able to interview uh, Joanne Woodward and Nell Newman, um, Roy Disney, lots of local people. There were so many different boys that went through the Hawk House and then went on to professional wildlife careers or went on to other kinds of careers. And I wanted to try to touch with those people as many as possible. And I worked with... Um, the boys, uh, Tyler and Beeve especially, to find out who were the key people. You know, and they had a hard time answering that. But once I got into it, I could tell, you know, the ones that really were good. And um, But anyway, there were scores of interviews to do. And then um, Morley's ex-wife, Betty Ann, um, lived in Boise, and they had been long divorced by then. But she lived over in the River Run area in Boise, and I interviewed her multiple times. And she was invaluable um, because um, she knew details about some of the trips, say, to the Middle East and things like that, that Morley had no memory of whatsoever. He remembered, you know, hawking in the Middle East with, with the Arabs and stuff like that, but... He didn't remember the dinner scene or, or eating eyeballs or, you know, things like that, you know. But Betty Ann knew all that. And, and, um, and then I, I spent many time, sessions with Morley um, with the tape rolling. And there would be about a five-minute thing where I would get the world according to Morley. And I, I'm a falconer and I did wonderful you know world of color movies for disney and he would go through that thing that was always just kind of in the front of his mind and then he'd get through that and i'd like okay today we're going to talk about 1950 or you know when you first saw the snake river canyon for the first time or you know and then he would do a great job and really get into what that was like and then I would learn about who he was with and other people, and I'd just sort of go down that trail and, and then do interviews with other people to bring the stories to life. And um, it was a great project. I loved it. And uh, it turned out really well, I think. I'm real proud of the book, and, and it did well, and, and still um, selling the book. And so, anyway. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, what are some of the things that surprised you? You know, I mean, you went into this having a certain level of knowledge and awareness about Morley's story, having known him for for many years. Um, I mean, did you come across anything that really, like, shocked you or was, like, you know, 
Um, I don't think so. Um, but I think one thing that stood out was sort of the um, the master of show and tell kinds of stuff. And that was going on well before the Birds of Prey area got protected in terms of the Wild Kingdom pieces that he did. He did several of those. Um, he went about finding every golden eagle eyrie down there that they could find in the space of 100 miles in that canyon. Huge endeavor. All the prairie falcon nests. And then he had permits with the Fish and Wildlife Service to take birds when they're juveniles to use them for education. And so he had done a ton of the actual groundwork for what researchers would later do. Um, and he did that one Wild Kingdom segment where, you know, early on he was trying to um, get people to stop shooting eagles and hawks off the top of fence posts. That was one of his first things that he was doing in the 50s, in the 40s, in the 60s. And it's hard for people to even imagine today. But, I mean, they saw him like a frickin' gopher or a coyote or, you know, a varmint. That's how ranchers saw them. And sheep ranchers literally thought that golden eagles flew off with lambs. They never really saw that, but that was what they thought. And so for him to actually take one of his, his trained golden eagles out on the edge of the Snake River Birds of Prey area with Marlon Perkins and Jim Fowler, and they tied the eight-pound weight to the bottom of that bird to its talons and its legs, it couldn't fly off the ground. And that was just a classic master of show-and-tell moment right there where it's like, okay, there it is. You can't, it can't happen. And then he had Andy Ogden, one of those boys that came up and went through the hawk house and loved hanging out with Morley when he was like in junior high and high school. He ended up getting a job with the Fish and Wildlife Service, and he went out and was checking what golden eagles eat in their nests. And so in the course of doing that, Andy confirmed 36 golden eagle iries in the late 60s before an actual study had been done. And then he also confirmed there was zero evidence of sheep in any of those iries that he was checking. So, you know, that there's a couple of things going on there at the same time. Mm. But I think the education part and then... You know, what I was going to say is that he understood the need for science, education and science. So you got to you have to educate policymakers and the agency people and give them what they need to be able to take this and protect the area. And so that was huge that he kind of got the research started before the first administrative withdrawal in 1970 and it was with that piece with Andy Ogden and then John Beecham got involved and and he was from um, I forget what university he came from oh it was Texas A&M and um, he had gotten his bachelor's and then he ended up working on a master's and so he went about documenting all 36 golden eagle iris at that time and they felt that was the science they needed to do an initial administrative withdrawal for the birds of prey area just like the rim to rim protection and so once they had that in hand they uh they took that 
um, to D- Washington, D.C. And this guy, uh, Bill Miners, also um, had put together this um, pictorial history of the area. And Bill was a photographer and also like the natural resources guy for the BLM in, assigned to Southwest Idaho. And so he had been out with Morley a million times and stuff and got all kinds of great pictures and stuff like that. And, and so, and he also pointed out that, um, through Ida, the offbeat Eagle, the, the Walt Disney movie and the, the mutual of Omaha wild kingdom pieces, more than 130 Americans had seen the Snake River Birds of Prey area on TV. And this was before, before the, the 1970 first, withdrawal. Wow. Right. Okay. And so yeah. that was one compelling thing that they had to take to Washington, D.C., along with all of Bill's great pictures. Morley had some homemade movies, and it was something that was done through the Interior Secretary, Rogers Morton, and there was no congressional approval needed to do that rim-to-rim protection. So there was a lot of research going on, like, in the 60s leading up to... Just a little bit. Those, just a little bit. Those, those two studies those two I mentioned. Sort, like, two key studies. Yeah. And that, then after that, mm-hmm. um, they got Mike Cokert involved, and he came right. in from Purdue. Right. Right. And then there was this guy, Maurice Hornacker, up at the University of Idaho that had this cooperative wildlife management unit, mm-hmm. but they could do all the master's and Ph.D. work mm-hmm. under Hornacker. And Hornacker, you maybe know something about him. He went on to study tigers, and, I mean, he became a world-renowned wildlife biologist and has the Hornacker Institute in Montana. Mm. And Morley, like, got to know this guy when he just first came to Idaho Mm -hmm. and brought him down to the Hawk House, you know, and then they went down to the Birds of Prey area. and. And I quoted Hornacker in my book about how he was so impressed with Morley about how he taught him. Hornacker really learned from Morley about this being a master of show and tell. Mm-hmm. And it's like you got to make people love these birds, you know? Yeah. They got to fall in love with it and feel part of the environment. Yeah. Morley said that over and over again. They got to feel a part of the environment, you know? Yeah. And so. You know, he got Hornocker under his wing, and then he got these kids under his wing, and then it all came together. So between 70 and 80, Cokert oversaw 13 different studies, master's and Ph.D. studies, to look at how big of an area needs to be protected to protect the pantry as they called it, basically, where the birds of prey were hunting for prey. The initial protection rim-to-rim was 25,255 acres, over 33 miles of the canyon. And then they ended up um, protecting well over 450,000 acres, Mm -hmm. over 80 miles of the canyon by the the end. Mm So and so, you know, uh, obviously, and, and like you know, we've heard a lot about you know, and, and you've mentioned the 1980 withdrawal that essentially established the the borders uh, that we have today. Right. Um, you know, I'm 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 curious about this relationship between Morley and Cecil Landers. Uh huh. Um, 
and you know a number of folks have you know talked about the nature of this relationship uh, in great detail. But I mean, it's you know, but it's interesting to me that like that initial withdrawal in 1970, um, you know, when we spoke to Norm Nelson. I mean, Norm ex- Norm told us like that was the most apor- important accomplishment. You know, like once that was established, he was like then Morley had something to work with, right? And he uh, yeah, did, like absolutely crucial like, that, first step. Right. But that happened, I mean, and I mean, I I I guess I'm 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 sort of like just curious like when Morley and Cecil first met, if if you're aware and 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 it's also interesting to me that like you know, sort of seems like once, you know, in, in like all throughout the 70s leading up to that withdrawal in 1980, it's like Morley sort of had like uh, um, a very strong political ally in Cecil oh, yeah. Andrus. Yeah. Right? And, you know, Andrus got elected in 70. Mm-hmm. So he really didn't take office till 71. Right. And so, but the like, actual. Who was, what I'm wondering is like, <clears throat> who were his political allies? before Cecil Andrus became governor and how did he accomplish that initial withdrawal in 1970 like without what you know we sort of I think typically see as his most prominent political ally well actually um Andrus did have um he was able to weigh in on it because the actual protection didn't occur till August of 71 Okay. So he had been in office for eight months. Okay. And by then he was a true believer. Um, I don't know exactly when they first met, um, but I don't think it would have been much earlier than then. Um, They probably met after he got elected um, because, you know, he was from Orofino and stuff and really wasn't hanging out in southern Idaho very much. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, as far as Andrus goes, mm-hmm. um, but clearly uh, Morley would have seen that this guy had, um, you know, a strong conservation ethic because of the uh, white clouds issue being prominent in the election mm-hmm. in terms of the mining issue there, um, and he came down on the side of protecting the white clouds, and and Samuelson uh, thought you know he should side side with the miners and the Sarco and. Uh, came down on the losing end of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so <clears throat> that was key that, that Anders was governor at the time. And then, but I think really Morley had the BLM super convinced at the local level and they had a rock solid case with the research that they had at the time t- to make it um, pretty easy to get that through. Mm-hmm. But they weren't really... Um, that was not controversial to protect the the rim to rim canyon walls because they weren't being used by anything. You know what I mean? And it became controversial to try to protect the uplands above the rim because the Farm Bureau and others were worried about potentially uh, bringing more water to the desert. And uh, so that could have been irrigated farmland in their mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why they were opposed to it um, in 1980. Um, but by then, Mike Coker had put together a rock-solid case um, for protecting the 484,000 acres for the Birds of Prey area. And, um, you know, they were talking about basically exporting water from 
Featherville, Idaho, over to the Birds of Prey area. I mean, really? <laughs> I mean, my God, to build a pipeline that far? I mean, it just wasn't going to happen, you know? <laughs> so um, Idaho's congressional uh, delegation couldn't come through, and Andrus did an administrative withdrawal uh, to make it permanent, well, not quite permanent, but a 20-year protection. Mm -hmm. And then LaRocco finished it off in 93. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it was very visionary for Morley and the BLM to put together that research package. And so, you know, there's no doubt they had made the case. Mm -hmm. And um, the science was there. Mm-hmm. You know, and Morley took every single one of those researchers to his hawk house, you know, indoctrinated them. Mm -hmm. And they all became huge fans of Morley, but birds of prey ultimately, mm -hmm. you know, and then that. So there's just that synergy that just continued to go on yeah. through that whole period. And so he was really one of a kind in that regard. Mm -hmm. Did you talk with and interview uh, Cecil Andrus as a part of the this this project as a part Absolutely. of Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I I'm just curious like what like any I think any insight at all that we can get into like the nature of their relationship um, I think is is interesting in the context of this Well, I think they were pretty close. Um, I don't know that they ever went hunting together. Um, and Morley was in the social uh, A-list in Boise. So even though he was not somebody with a ton of money, like many of the A-listers in Boise at the time, he still uh, was really well-liked by all those people, and so they're often invited. Um, but I think you could say that Morley had um, the kind of relationship where he could show up at Anders' office, and if he wasn't totally busy he would make time for Morley instantly and he would just basically walk in and he would be in tatters you know like with his wool pants on and his army jacket you know and disheveled appearance and uh bringing someone important to see the governor and did that all the time mm -hmm. and that was one thing that sold the Paragon Fund founders on coming to Boise, oh, okay. he walked them into the governor's office, and it was like, holy crap. He walked them into McClure's office, Senator McClure. I mean, he knew all of the elected officials by first name basis, and, you know, he'd just walk in, and they get business done. You know, we need to get this done today, you know, or in the next couple weeks, and they get it done. Um, Idaho is still a pretty small state, and you could get stuff done. And um, so he was huge, the way he had those connections. But, I mean, I think Morley had huge respect. Andrus had huge respect for Morley because Morley was a falconer, and he came from agrarian roots, so he's kind of blue-collar. Andrus was blue-collar, being, you know, coming from Orofino and logging and all that kind of stuff. Um and they both liked to hunt. Um, and, you know, Morley flew his birds at wild game. 
there's a lot of falconers that have pen birds that they might release and then the falcon goes out and kills a pen bird. I mean, he went out into bird habitat where there's pheasants and quail and different things and like they often talk about hunting out by the where Boise Town Square is today and it was like cattle yard and feedlots and there were a lot of ducks out there because of the standing water and stuff and he'd just go out there and fly his birds all the time and so Anders would go out and see those kinds of things and I mean, when you saw that, you were just like, to watch a falcon stoop on a duck or a pheasant, you know, and just come dead vertical dive down and kill that bird. I mean, you know, that's something to behold. Mm -hmm. And so he knew that he knew his stuff, you know, and his heart was in the right place. He was absolutely authentic, genuine, you know. um, Morley wasn't going to give him a bum steer, or he wasn't going to overstate the case, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of what the threat might be or whatever. Mm-hmm. So hmm. I think I think they're pretty close. Do you have any sense of what it was like for Morley to see that area finally get designated as an NCA? You know, and I mean, it's sort of like a question of like how, I mean, in part, it's like, you know, we're focused on this national conservation area. Like your book was focused on Morley's life right. more broadly, right? And, right? and and obviously he was, you know, getting protection for the NCA was just one of many projects that, that he had going on. So, I mean, sort of like, like how, how important was that moment to him? I think it was huge. Um, I think he was super proud of it. I'm sure he would have been shedding a tear in 1970 when they did that first level of protection or 71. Um, and same thing in 1980, um, he was very grateful. Um, and Tom Cade, uh, you know, spoke at this really big shindig they had for Morley at the Morrison Center. And I think he was turning 70 or 75, I can't remember, but, uh, you know, in looking back at everything that Morley had accomplished. Tom Cade was also a very accomplished person when it comes to birds of prey conservation on a national and world level. And he felt ultimately that was Morley's biggest contribution to the world. Hmm. And so, you know, I think that's, that's what I came concluded as well. Um, he contributed to many other things, but... I think that is his single most important achievement. Before we sort of move past that, right? Like, like I, I, I guess I'm wondering if there are any like sort of key moments, um, like sort of from your perspective and from your perspective of sort of viewing this like through the lens of Morley's life. Um, you know, we've been talking about like these sort of uh, uh, landmark moments in the protection of the NCA in 1971 and 1980 and then 93. I mean, is, like, is there anything else that, that, that happened or any other like key event that maybe happens um, under the radar but ended up having a lot of significance ultimately? Well, I might just say that it was really more on the... Um human challenge side, actually. And these were some things I got into in the book where, 
there was a lot of big stuff happening in the early 70s. And in retrospect, I kind of feel like that was when Morley, his, he was peaking almost in terms of his own accomplishments. And there was this really neat movie done called The Eagle and the Hawk um, that was um, paid for like by the National Education Association. Nell Newman was this 13-year-old girl starring in the movie with Morley and Morley's rappelling down into an eagle eyrie for the first time with Nell Newman. And it's in the spring and, you know, her blonde hair is waving in the wind. It's just like the cutest moment you can imagine, you know, and she's scared. She, you know, she's never done rappelled down a cliff and they're vertical, you know, and Morley didn't have the most sophisticated climbing stuff. He was still using these ropes they'd used in the 10th Mountain Division. And Andy Ogden said, those ropes stretched forever, you know, and so you're dangling from these ropes, you know, and like a rubber band, you know. But anyway, that was like, and then then he had met John Denver, convinced, took John Denver out on the cliffs. John Denver writes the the song for the beginning and the end of The Eagle and the Hawk, and that still brings a tear to my eye. So right around then, Morley was getting divorced um, from Betty Ann. Betty Ann had had it. Uh, she was fed up with all this Birds of Prey stuff and all these people hanging around the house. And like Andy Ogden had mentioned, you know, when they got done with school, they would just go over to their patio and sit there for an hour and a half and wait for Morley to get home from work. <laughs> you know, And she just got tired of all these people hanging around and... And all that, and and she ended up um, falling for the president of the California Senate and moved to California, and I'm out of here. And then Morley's um, second son was killed in a car wreck up at the University of Idaho. And um, right after that, the divorce. And so I felt I needed to bring that stuff into the book. And the family wasn't all that excited about it and no one really wanted to talk about it but I finally got him to talk about it um, and I found other people that had been involved in that car wreck even mm-hmm. with Tim Nelson mm-hmm. and um, because I was impressed with how Morley was able to move on with his life despite human tragedy because he had already done that um, through his service to the country and the 10th Mountain Division um, when he was fighting in Italy and he had been injured there, but he also saw a lot of people get killed. Mm-hmm. I talked one day about just sitting on a, like next to a tree, just had his back up on the stump of a tree, just taking a rest with another guy. And they looked up in the tree and there was a dead person up in the branches, you know, mm-hmm. stuff like that. I mean, it's just all around you. Mm-hmm. Um, I just found that to be amazing, you know, how he was able to sort of compartmentalize that kind of stuff mm-hmm. and, and uh, move on with his life in a way that um, other people could send them in a, into a tailspin from which they'd never recover, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But Morley moved on, and he had 
the the cause um, of the birds of prey, and uh, there was always something more to work on. He was on the board of the Paragon Fund, you know, and mm-hmm. so he stayed involved in a lot of the stuff they were doing when Paragon Falcons were really on the brink of extinction and then setting up all these hack boxes and how would you do that exactly Mm -hmm. in different environments. And Mm -hmm. so he was just always engaged in stuff and stayed with it. Mm -hmm. And uh, just from a human perspective, I just thought, wow, that, that would be so hard, you know, to deal with those things and somehow... You know, just being from the greatest generation and stuff, um, he had found a way to deal with that. And, you know, he ended up remarrying. And and, um, I think he felt like he had a great life, you know, through and through. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know. I think that was one thing that I felt was really pretty significant that happened during those times. Absolutely. And, and so when was, what, what was the time period? Like when, when? We're talking early 70s. Early 70s, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So like the Bird's Prey area gets yeah. protected 71 and mm-hmm. then he gets divorced and loses one of his kids and mm-hmm. <laughs> making movies nevertheless. And yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's, it's particularly interesting to me to hear you talk about that, I think in part because like I really get the sense that this whole operation you know this whole like campaign of his to like protect raptors and with the protection of the nca being one component of that like was a family operation all like involved in the business of like producing these films and doing the education and doing outreach and like right you know norm told us all these stories about being in high school and you know, doing educational presentations like with uh, yeah, and he was birds. one of the cameras on Ida the Offbeat Eagle, mm-hmm. and like uh, so. Anyway, um, yeah, it's just, it was it's, a family mm-hmm. operation, but that was something that was too much for Betty Ann to bear. Sure, and then because she went off to California, then um, Morley remarried Pat. And then he had all of that work to do with Cokert and all the graduate students for the next 10 years to get the actual pantry protected. And then he's, he's just got to go fly birds every afternoon, and he's got to feed the birds every day, you know, and then they're filming the birds and all that. And, I mean, you think about it, there's no autofocus on a camera, and they're, like... You watch them and those shoots, they're like trying to focus in on these birds going well over 100 miles an hour. And then they're doing the same thing with these downhill skiers. It's like piece of cake, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they were talented. Um, you know, after after the NCA is designated in 93, I mean, you know, like what what was Morley doing at that point? You know, later on in his life, I mean, it, he had he had achieved this. This thing the, that he had been working for for like a huge percentage well, the of Paragon his life. Well, the Paragon Fund stuff, he he stayed involved okay. in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing that he was doing is doing those uh, Birds of Prey tours with Steve Gwynn. And so Steve Gwynn was actually a whitewater outfitter and lived in the Treasure Valley. And Morley somehow met him. I don't know exactly. I can't. It's in the book probably, but I can't remember exactly how they met. But I do remember that he, he basically did the same indoctrination kind of thing and mm-hmm. took him up to the Hawk House. And, and basically, 
he uh, he convinced Steve Gwynn that we need to we need to do these birds of prey tours so we can show people all the eagle iries and you know they can see the birds flying around and all that and and um, it just be a great thing and so Gwen went out and found some giant double pontoon boat that with a big outboard and they could go on Swan Falls Reservoir and puts up the reservoir and Morley knew where all the eagle iries were and he could give him a microphone and he could talk for hours. <laughs> so he did that. Did a ton of them. Yeah. Um, he also went and talked to schools a lot. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, anytime he was asked to give a presentation, he'd do that. Um, but I think then he kind of, uh, you know, he was able to um, go down to Mexico and vacation with Pat in the winters and spend some time down there and actually just take some time off. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was his day job was the snow survey supervisor for the uh, Soil Conservation Service, and uh, so he retired with a pension. And uh, they'd made some cash from some of the Disney movies, which paid for the pool they had at their place up there mm-hmm. on East Way. And um, so he got to enjoy life a little bit more. But uh, if you got captive birds like they always did then someone's got to feed them and fly them and then he kind of got people like Monty Tish and uh, a bunch of other people involved to actually sort of take over the management of some of these captive birds and that was smart mm-hmm. and so you know that's that's been one thing that's kind of missing out there is a is a champion for the birds of prey area that we had with Morley Nelson. Um, I love the, uh, the NCA partnership that's growing and building right now. And, um, I hope that they can, they can run with that torch. But I think, uh, the habitat out there, I think about 60% of it is, is listed officially as in poor condition. And, um, you worry about, how that habitat is for prairie falcons and golden eagles and hundreds of other raptors that are out there. But amazingly enough, um, the populations are holding on. And um, ultimately, I would love to see our congressional delegation step up and provide a much larger appropriation for research and operations at the Birds of Prey area so they could do massive landscape scale restoration and that would be a perfect place to do that that would have utility for the rest of the whole uh, snake river plain all the way into eastern idaho because we've got a lot of areas that have been taken over by noxious weeds and cheatgrass and so forth and and i personally have reported on places that they brought back at a landscape scale and um, i would love to see some budget come where they could really go after that with vigor and uh you know there's just nobody's asking for that at this point and um the blm's kind of getting starved to death at a national level along with forest service and some other natural resource agencies and and that's just tragic and so um it's just personal opinion i'd love to see that happen 
Yeah, and that, I mean, you just answered my 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 next question, which was sort of you know like what the future holds for the NCA and and um, yeah, that's uh, I think uh, a very specific you know sort <laughs> of like you know thing that that could be done to to address yeah. what is clearly the largest you know sort of problem out there you know and 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 the largest sort of problem looking towards the future is but the um, other thing that needs to happen um is uh the people using the area as a rec on a recreation level um could step up more in terms of how they conduct themselves out there um and you have a pretty wide range of people out there besides just people like hiking and biking you have people out on ATVs and UTVs and pickup trucks and they go out and shoot whistle pigs and stuff like that and mm-hmm. um, there's a tremendous amount of trash that gets left behind and um, the BLM had a spring cleanup they're trying to set a record for how many people might participate and I don't know if they managed to break the record but I know they got a lot of people out there. Um, people from CUNA are concerned about it and Nampa. And, um, but anyway, uh, you know, that's just ridiculous to have people dumping stuff out there. Um, but we still see that on our public lands, um, not only in the Birds of Prey area, but uh, elsewhere in Idaho and elsewhere. So, um, you know, I'd like to see much more of an effort on that, and that takes information and education and and uh, public outreach and, and uh, billboards and um, media outreach. And we need to protect this area and be really proud of it, you know. And, and again, you know, without a guy like Morley, you know, it, it, I've loved all of the uh, attention that's been placed on the area this year by the BLM. I thought they hit it out of the park, really, with all the different events, public events, um, you know, all these opportunities for kids to show up to, say, a library or whatever close to their house to see Birds of Prey. They did a lot of those this spring, and I led a hike out there. There were other guided hikes out in the Birds of Prey area, and... Um, we need to keep that going uh, so people are aware of the area and, and aware of what the needs are out there and um, really just take a lot of pride in it and and make it one of our own. And, and you know, Morley was just so good at that. And uh, he's left, you know, it's just big shoes to fill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, one little kernel here that we didn't, mention and yeah you might i would just you know going back to the cokert studies mm-hmm. um through those 13 studies they documented that there were more than 600 pairs of raptors nesting in the area representing 15 species and then more than 200 pairs of prairie falcons nesting in the area representing five percent of the the bird's world population so again, you know that science was mm-hmm. just huge, and uh, yeah, it's remarkable. And it's remarkable that there's still, at least we believe, they're still there in similar right. densities, right? Despite the fact that we know degraded habitat, degraded habitat. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I guess the only other thing I just on a personal note, when I see birds of prey flying overhead, I I always feel like Morley's spirit. 
lives inside. You know, if I'm out floating mm-hmm. a river and I see a bald eagle and, you know, it's just sort of, yeah, I'm touched. Yeah. And, you know, his spirit probably can't live in all the birds of prey. <laughs> but <laughs> it's almost like it would because yeah. the, the broad reach that he had. Mm-hmm. So um, just what a remarkable guy, you know. And um, I guess the other thing was um, just I was disappointed um, in the, the subtitle of this book and – we wanted conservation in the subtitle oh. of this book, and uh, that ended up not making the final print run. Um, so uh, that was unfortunate, I thought, because I think, you know, in retrospect, he he has been one of the most, you know, a leading person in terms of birds of prey conservation on a national level. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I'd done the research in terms of what other people had done in different places, you know, and, mm-hmm. and um, the breadth of everything he yeah. did was truly remarkable. Well, let me ask you this, because you spent so much time on this, and I'm sure you came up with something akin to this. Like, what was your, like, elevator pitch, you know, to, like, how could, could you summarize, like, Morley's story and what you were trying to achieve in telling his story with that book, like very, you know, in a very concise way, like you're. Well, I think the best way I c- is just that he's he's a uh, a great national champion for birds of prey. I, th- that's really the best way I've found to summarize it. Um, I've, you know, written probably tens of thousands of articles over my career and. He's the only guy I've ever run across where you can't really summarize everything he's done in one sentence. <laughs> you know, because the birds of prey conservation is ultimately the big thing. Mm-hmm. But then there's all these other parts of his life in terms of the education, the master of show and tell, um, uh, his his uh, being uh, part of the greatest generation and the World War II. And it was just cool to see how everything progressed in his life to prepare him for what he did ultimately in terms of conservation. And it was, it took decades to get him to that point, you know, where he was such a, amazing authority mm-hmm. and by then he had absolute credibility and authenticity about all of those things and he could stand there and tell you what needed to be done and you know there's no denying it <laughs> you know there's nobody that can come in with some kind of fake news or something and try to sideline what he's talking about and you know these kind of guys from that generation they they really uh had singular purpose and they you know for him it was conservation and falconry and birds of prey and and um nothing was going to knock him off that that line i mean that was it and it mattered you know I mean, what matters to people today? You wonder about that with some people, you know, political leaders or even environmentalists. You know, what really matters to them? 
you know, that goes right to their heart. I mean, he's just absolutely genuine, you know, and to me, that's one of a kind. Mm-hmm. That was Steve Stubner, environmental reporter and author of Cool North Wind, a biography of Morley Nelson. If you'd like to learn more about this oral history project, more information can be found at birdsofpreyncapartnership.org slash dedication point. Dedication Point is a production of the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership in association with the Bureau of Land Management, the Wildlands Collective, and the Archives of Falconry. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Great Turtle. <laughs>